trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. We're off and running for a new week, and the possibilities, well, they're both, uh, they're both uh, endless and a little bit scary in some cases. <laughs> uh, where do I begin? Actually, I want to start with some good news. Last week, I had on the show uh, Jeff Einstein. And uh, Jeff, I, I recently discovered through his Substack, which is a quality of life resistance movement, or qolrm.substack.com. Now, I'm going to have him back on the show because I think this, I think Jeff is a guy who has got some really powerful insights and, and he's been at this a while. He started seeing the light uh, a lot earlier than many of us. I mean, we're all somewhere on that journey, right? We're all somewhere finding our way out of that swamp of misinformation. Jeff has been a trailblazer for some time and I'm just, I want to, first of all, I want to toot his horn and say, I am really happy to see he is getting some serious traction, and I'm seeing more and more of his pieces published on LouRockwell.com. I think I've, I've been going to LouRockwell.com, I'm going to guess, for probably the better part of 25 years now. And if you're not familiar with it, this is one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers in that it's a, an, a news aggregator site. Uh, maybe it's a commentary aggregator site. So lots of different articles and, and opinion pieces on a daily basis. By the way, I've actually been published on there a few times myself, just a handful of times, but that was always a, a huge, huge feeling of, wow, you know, this is, this is reaching a pretty good audience. And I like to visit lourockwell.com daily, just because he has, I think, some of the most consistent anti-state, anti-war, pro-market commentaries out there, and, and a real good variety. It's, this is not all some big echo chamber. You'll see some, some good disagreement, too. But most importantly, you'll learn something. So long story short, very happy to see that uh, Jeff Einstein is among those now who uh, is is being featured on there. I mean, Eric Peters is regularly on there. Um, this just makes me happy because I consider these to be, you know, some of the, the better resources for people like you and me who are just trying to figure out what's going on in the world. and want some good, credible information based in principle, less than, you know, party politics, raw, raw, red team, raw, raw, blue team. I think it's, it's essential that we break out of the, the political spell every so often, if not uh, most of the time, in order to understand what's going on. So having said that, I want to share a, an article. Um, it, it's funny, just a, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I did a, uh, I, I do a little uh, daily feature called Hide in Plain Sight. And uh, it's, it's my version of a two-minute truth bomb that it airs on a few radio stations, and, it's, uh, and I publish it on Substack, and, you know, I have a handful of subscribers. I would invite you, if you're curious, become a subscriber. It's free. You know, you can become a paid subscriber if you want, but if you want to be a free subscriber, that's fine, too. My goal is I'm just trying to put some information out there that is 100% nonpartisan, but most importantly, points towards principles, practices, you know, ideals that help the individual reclaim their autonomy. 
And it's not like I have all the answers to life's questions. I'm, I'm not the guru here. I'm not the oracle who's telling everybody this is what you must do. But if you'd like to subscribe, I would encourage you, please check it out. If you go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com, there's a nice big link that'll take you directly to Hide in Plain Sight. So a couple of weeks ago, I published one about how um, the heretics are the people you should be listening to. And Jeff reached out and commented on that and said, hey, this is reminiscent of a piece I published some time ago, and his is called Herald the Apostates. And I think Jeff does much better justice to this, this uh, message than I did. My, my take was just simply, look, the only people who really move the needle when, when, when progress is needed in society, when we need to stop doing something that's destructive or that's unproductive— it's the people who are willing to march to a different drum or who are willing to break free of the crowd that are able to show us a better way. The dissenters. And unfortunately, these are the people who often get pub- punished. rather. So examples of heretics could include uh, Rosa Parks, for example. She was a heretic. Why? Well, she wouldn't give up her seat to a man on the bus. Yeah, she went to jail for it. And that's actually one of the things you'll notice is a lot of the heretics uh, will be punished. They'll, you know, face legal repercussions. Ammon Bundy's another example of this. Absolutely seen as a heretic by, you know, people in power as well as a good portion of the public who's, you know, stuck in that low information rut. But if you really want to see the people who are committed to principle and the people who are advocating for a better way, these are the ones you need to look at. So I thought I'd share with you uh, this this article from, from Jeff Einstein, Herald the Apostates, subtitled, They Will Point the Way. Here's how he puts it. He says, I've always admired and been drawn to apostates, religious or otherwise, for much the same reason. And he says, I think that I've always admired and been drawn to art, cats, birds, nature, kids, baseball, and the great American experiment at large. I see in all of them the heart, or, sorry, the breathtaking expression and indomitable spirit of freedom. Now, Jeff says, not long after the printing press destroyed Western theocracies, not long after the Enlightenment and Age of Reason gave birth to the scientific method and the American French and Industrial Revolutions, Friedrich Nietzsche declared God dead. The very next day, we looked up to the heavens and said in so many words, thanks, but no thanks, we'll take it from here. In the absence of the sacred, the 20th century that followed was murderous beyond comprehension. Wow. I, is he wrong? He's not wrong. That's, that's probably the most powerful way I've heard that put. But he points out, it was also relevatory and liberating. The liberal world order that rose like a phoenix from the ash and charnel houses of World War II was in many ways the real world manifestation of a bright and blinding utopian vision. He says it described a new world order wherein democracy, free trade, Universal human rights, collective security, and respect for the environment would ascend in the penumbra of secular institutions grounded not in religious superstition, but in the unassailable foundations of science and technology. It worked wonders, for a while at least. Democracy flourished and billions were lifted from the misery, from the misery rather of crippling poverty. But the utopian vision and optimism that marked the second half of the 20th century came crashing down like the World Trade Center's or World Trade Towers, rather, in the early 21st, replaced instead by the dark specter of a dystopian technopoly, a deep state of utterly unaccountable power and wealth powered by trillions of microchips. 
Big Data was quietly anointed as the new reserve currency and put to work behind the scenes, hidden from view like the Wizard of Oz, behind a massive streaming curtain of endless entertainment and mindless diversion. He says, with big data came the rise of global fascism and the unholy union of immense private corporations, equally immense government agencies, and global NGOs, all equipped with the same tools of digital scale. Jeff says, Western democracies withered under the assault and were transformed before our eyes into autocratic surveillance states. Once enervated... Military alliances were born again in the war on terror, reconstituted with trillions of pilfered public dollars and reinvested with new marching orders to protect the established priesthood of the once liberal world order, now thoroughly illiberal and highly militarized. He says, like the citizens of Aldous Huxley's brave new world, we suddenly found ourselves controlled less by the things we fear and more by ironclad addiction to the things we love, state-sanctioned pharmaceuticals, sex, and endless entertainment. Addiction, the deliberate end state of mass consumer society in the 21st century, became the established social rule rather than the occasional exception. And he says, while the ongoing passive compliance is all but guaranteed by the Huxleyan model of default addiction to the things we love, ultimate enforcement falls, as always, to the more traditional Orwellian tactics predicated on the things we fear. Things like social destruction, financial ruin, jackboots, tear gas, imprisonment, and bullets. In the great age of addiction, Huxwell smiles down at us, but rules with an iron fist. Jeff Einstein says throughout it all, what the elite high priests of the digital church and the liberal world order fail to acknowledge in the shimmering haze of their own narcissistic narcosis is that the scientific, pharmaceutical, and technological canon they preach and expect us to worship without question today is no less religious than that of the Judeo-Christian ethic they so brutally dismissed and replaced in the 20th century. He says it turns out that all gods, religious and secular alike, are jealous gods. Turns out that the secular high priests of techno-media, when confronted by the sudden rise of apostates in their midst, midst rather, close ranks and behave just like the high priests of Solomon's temple, just like Torquemada's henchmen, just like the Iranian mullahs. Now, I'm going to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own commercial break, but is this not just spot-on commentary? This is one of the reasons why I'm going to reach out to, to Jeff today and see if I can get him back on the show maybe a little bit later this week. And in the meantime, I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. These are the show notes for September 18th, belated happy Constitution Day to everybody. I hope you'll click on it. I hope you'll go to Jeff's Substack and subscribe. We'll come back to this commentary, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So we're talking about uh, Harold the Apostates. And I know this is good. Apostate, whoa, let's not go there. That's the kind of people I don't want to hang out with. Well, I'm not necessarily talking religious apostates. I'm talking about the societal apostates, the heretics, the ones who are, you know, denounced on every side from the powers that be because they dare to push back against the systems that seek to rule us. You know, I think it was Solzhenitsyn, it was Solzhenitsyn who said, you know, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit. 
in jail. And more and more, I believe, wow, the, the people who have stood up for truth, the people who have actually, you know, tried to stand for something, look at the way that they come under attack. I think Russell Brand, by the way, is the latest one who's, who's under, you know, this, this declaration. Well, you know, he raped women, you know, this many years ago. And it's, it's always the same kind of accusations. You know, Julian Assange, likewise, was accused of rape, I believe, in Sweden. Now, ultimately, you know, acquitted when it was adjudicated. It was like, no, this, nobody could prove that this happened. But um, think of how many, was it Brett Kavanaugh, Supreme Court Justice, same kind of thing. Oh, yes, well, he raped me at a high school party years ago. It's kind of become the catch-all accusation. And the sad thing about it is there are people out there who probably have done things that, uh, that would constitute like a real crime, like sexual assault or rape. But it's also, this is watered down when, when the left starts using this as a tactic. Well, you know, this guy, you know, Russell Brand is a good example of this. Russell Brand, for a long time, was on the political left, and he was kind of a typical, you know, drug-addled, you know, hedonistic Hollywood type. But he got red-pilled somewhere along the way. And it's been very fascinating to see his his story. And by the way, you know, I I don't think, you know, well, he interviewed, you know, this guy from the WEF once upon a time, and therefore he's totally in league with them. Look, give people the opportunity to show up different or to change their point of view. I hope we all have enough intellectual integrity that, you know, if we encounter new evidence or new um, information, we can change our thinking. And it just so happens, I've been keeping an eye on Russell Brand as he has kind of been uh, coming to that awakening of realizing, holy cow, so much of what we've been told is just a lie. And he's become a very effective spokesperson. And in fact, he, he has called out a number of things that make, I guess, uh, the people in power uncomfortable. So it's not surprising to see that, uh, you know, the next onslaught would be unleashed against him. All right. Having said that, back to Jeff Einstein's Herald the Apostates commentary. He says, of course, the ideological apostates of the 21st century, like the religious apostates of previous centuries, are all but impossible to deny. In no small measure, because they, are, because they, like all apostates, step into the light as orphan stepchildren of the establishment priesthood that spawns them. He says, it's one thing when some of us refuse to live our lives in the gender realities of our DNA, or when we proclaim freedom from traditional religion or, ethic, or ethnic ethos especially when our refusals and proclamations conform entirely to the institutional orthodoxy of the moment, but quite another apparently when we step out as wrong thinkers, however inconvenient for the ruling class. Black and Hispanic Republicans are still black and Hispanic. Gay and lesbian Trump voters are still gay and lesbian. He says, always the brightest examples of liberty and freedom among us, apostates are intolerable to the status quo not only because they've escaped the physical, religious, and ethnic shackles that once defined them, but far more critically, because they have escaped the prisons of contemporary orthodox thought. In the state of Huxwell, the only apostasy that stirs the ire of power is apostasy of thought. Spot on. Jeff Einstein says the narratives and arguments of apostates are rendered more authentic and less refutable with each contrarian life choice they make. Just as they're Apostatic credentials are enhanced by the enmity and vilification they endure at the hands of those most threatened by their existence. More important still, their struggles inspire other apostates to step from the shadows into the light. He nailed it. That's, that's the reason why the systems go after them so, so ruthlessly. If we see Russell Brand or other people stepping out and saying, hey, 
this was all wrong, we might be tempted to do likewise. He found the courage to do it. I guess I can find the courage. Jeff Einstein says, Historically, many apostates are reluctant heroes. Cast aside as pariahs and enemies of the state, pronounced unclean by their own communities, friends, and families, apostates are compelled, like early Christians, to find comfort and safety in the company of other apostates. It is here, in the often accidental confluence of social decay, shared passion, and common cause, that we find the most reasoned and well-tuned narratives in the most unlikely places. Here, for instance, he says, we find progressive apostates like Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, Tulsi Gabbard, Michael Tracy, Brett Weinstein, Kara uh, Dansky, RFK Jr., Batya Ungarsagan, uh, Aaron Mate, Max Blumenthal, Russell Brand, heck, there he is, and Naomi Wolf. By the way, this was written over a year ago, so he's, you know, again, Jeff is onto something here. All seated across from the only corporate media host who will still talk to them, Tucker Carlson, whose anti-war, anti-vax, and populist, anti-establishment apostasy puts him very much at odds with most of the prevailing narrative on Fox News. Now, again, this was written a year ago. What happened in that year? Yeah, Fox News showed Tucker the door. He counts as an apostate, too. Jeff Einstein says, In more ancient times, most apostates didn't survive long enough to enjoy their own success. More typically, disease, the noose, or the crucifix killed them off before the age of 40. In modern times, however, apostates live much longer, much more comfortable lives. Comfort, security, and success, however, are the enemies of apostatic passion. Witness the last graduating class of social apostates perhaps the first generation to survive their own apostasy, the formerly liberal campus radicals of the 1960s. Their security, comfort, and success as tenured professors over the past three generations has transformed most of them into willing, illiberal tools of a system they once despised. Success and material comfort are seductive mistresses. Almost three generations after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the introduction of the Great Society, Almost three generations after Betty Friedan's feminine mystique and almost three generations after the very first Earth Day, today's Democratic Party, despite the diverse racial and ethnic mix, is now ideologically monochromatic and effete. Today's Democratic Party is awash with diversity of everything except thought. Three generations of ideological inbreeding has rendered it all but indistinguishable from the Republican Party of the 1960s. Classist, racist, authoritarian, censorious, anti-feminist, ecologically ruinous, deeply indebted to corporate power, and, like love-struck teenagers, hopelessly enamored with the FBI, CIA, NSA, and other deep state agencies. In essence... The apostates of the 1960s survived just long enough and experienced just enough material, material success to become the ideological monsters they once hated the most. Still, he says their success is undeniable. Their ideological disciples now control almost all of institutional America and almost all of American culture. As a karmic result of their success, however, most ideological apostates in the 21st century, so far at least, are conservative. Nothing draws more ire and sheer contempt from the ruling liberal elite these days than the rise of high-profile conservative blacks and Hispanics or conservative gays and conservative lesbians, with the possible exception of the truly progressive apostates who appear on Tucker Carlson. Now, he says, of course, there is no guarantee that the conservative apostates of today won't succumb to the addictions of modern creature comfort and extended life expectancy, just like their liberal counterparts of the 1960s. 
He says, my hope, however fragile, is that they will remain ideologically steadfast and resolute regardless of success or longevity, but only time will tell. In any event, enough is enough. We can no longer seek to replace reality with utopia. The jury was out for the entire 20th century, but now the jury is back and the verdict is irrefutable. All of our utopian visions eventually turn against us. Communism turned against us. The thousand-year Reich turned against us. The Great Society turned against us. The Green New Deal is turning against us right now as nations with the highest ESG scores are unraveling at the seams and foaming with populist dissent. He says the lesson is clear. Today's utopian dream is always tomorrow's dystopia. By the way, there is more to this article. I will let you discover it for yourself, though. But the bottom line is pay close attention to the apostates of the 21st century. Jeffrey Einstein says they will point the way. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And again, thank you for taking a chance and, you know, listening to what's going on here. I have no special claims to any kind of expertise. I'm not good looking. I'm not rich. I'm not even that talented. But I really feel a strong sense to speak the truth as best I can. And and I do this with the understanding that I never know how many people out there are, are going to hear this message. It could be one person. It could be a handful of people. It, it could be, you know, thousands of people. I don't know. The only thing I know for certain is that there are people who are looking for truth, light, encouragement, and the understanding that they are not alone in their quest to, to take ownership of their lives and to, to resist all those attempts to saddle them and ride them like some kind of a horse. So for that person, whoever you are, <laughs> this is for you. And I don't know how many people you have you know, out there listening with you, but I just know that the truth seekers are there and I trust that this message will find them. So, having said that, let me give a quick thanks to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCP Nation, the Modern Conservative Podcast.com, also ClimbingUpward.com, and QuiltAndSew.com. So, I want to talk for just a moment about uh, taking ownership of your life in, in the sense of, if you're going to stand for something, the first way you'll know that you're onto something of substance, in other words, that, that you have chosen something real is you are going to get pushback. In fact, you're going to get critics. And if you're out there trying to share a message, the surest way to find out whether or not you're having impact is uh, are you being criticized? People who aren't having impact don't get criticized. So having critics is kind of a mixed blessing. When the critics start to show up and they start, you know, railing on you, you know, it's a compliment. It really is because you're being noticed. But on the other hand, being attacked and being smeared, Sucks. There's no other way to put it. It's, it's not fun. And the first time it happens, it's actually very uncomfortable. In fact, it's, it's downright painful. That first blow is usually enough to make most people kind of stop and go, whoa, do I really believe this and do I want to continue? Because this is super uncomfortable and I don't like having people tell me that I am crap, you know, to my face or digitally. You know, but more often it happens that way. They're hiding behind their keyboard. And it really makes you stop and think, okay, how serious am I? How much do I believe in what I'm saying here? Because it really stings that bad. Now, the good news is your skin thickens over time. You learn to, to take it in stride. And, uh, and 
I know it's going to sound arrogant, at least to, to my critics, it would sound arrogant, but I appreciate it when critics are, are coming after me because it's like, cool, I'm not just preaching to the choir. On the other hand, I really don't care what those critics have to say. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about here. If, if all they're trying to do is score some kind of a gotcha moment, they really have nothing to offer me. So I'm just like, go ahead, push those buttons all you want. They're not connected to anything. Now, if criticism is coming from someone who I actually know and respect, I will listen. And I'll pay closer attention because more often than not, that kind of criticism is going to come as a result of someone who actually genuinely cares. I think you may be off base on this, or I think it's distracting the way that you talk about this, whatever it may be, but I'll, I'll listen to it. But the critics who are just out there, you know, trying to score points or just, you know, to, to spread venom, I don't take them seriously and you shouldn't either. In fact, I want to share with you, uh, this is a commentary from James Walpole from a few years back, powerful people don't defend themselves. And his point here is when you become ju- defensive and you try to justify yourself, you allow your accuser to choose the battlefield and set the benchmarks. So he starts with the question, have you ever gained face with your critics by defending yourself to them? Have you ever gained the respect of people who mock you or question you by telling them they're wrong about you? Now he says it's tempting to mount a defense when people criticize you. In fact, he says the older I get, the more I realize that defending yourself, with words at least, is counterproductive. Defensiveness for most human interactions is a sign of weakness. Let that one sink in for a moment. It begins with an implicit admission that the accuser is worthy of a defense from you. The critic becomes worthy to sit in a place of judgment over you. To become defensive and to justify yourself is to allow your accuser to choose the battlefield and set the benchmarks of your innocence or guilt. So let's go back to high school, for example. James Walpole says, if someone calls you uncool and you spend time explaining how cool you really are, you pretty quickly prove to everyone listening that you're not. Look to the business world, too. If someone accuses you of not being effective enough as a team member, do you gain more by protesting and rattling off reasons you're great? No. On the contrary, you look desperate. Dealing with accusation, he says, seems like a rigged game. Words are empty when you would really expect them to count. But fortunately, there are far better things to do than defend yourself or justify yourself. Now listen to his point here. Critics are not bad, but you should engage them on a level playing field. Perhaps the most powerful story where we see how to deal with accusers is the story of Jesus standing trial before Herod, as portrayed in the Gospel of Luke. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So Jesus maintains a similar stoic calm throughout his trial. He doesn't speak up to justify himself. He acts nobly and speaks the truth, which only amounts to a few words throughout the course of his conversations with Herod and then the Roman governor, Pilate. In all of this conduct, we see Jesus successfully throwing back the criminality of the trial and the baselessness of the accusations against his accusers. He is ultimately killed, but even Pilate is unconvinced of his guilt by the end of the trial. Jesus succeeds in transcending accusation through action. So to paraphrase one saying from Jesus, wisdom is vindicated by the deeds of her children. And James Walpole says, likewise, the wisdom, strength, or goodness of your character will be vindicated by your actions, not your, by your words. 
So think about what that means. If you're accused of lacking integrity, gain and deploy integrity in your decisions in ways that are undeniable, even to your accusers. If you're accused of immaturity, don't defend yourself. Grow and use wisdom in ways that are undeniable, even to your accusers. If you're accused of lacking skill or efficiency or work ethic, don't defend yourself. Just act. Become what you are not. Use what you have and let the accusations ring hollow. This is the way of people who don't give up their power to critics. I feel like that is a power-packed concentrate of wisdom right there. And this is from like six years ago. James Walpole uh, wrote this. This was published by the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Holy cow, that's powerful stuff. And I tell you this not because I think, you know, you're just chomping at the bit to go out there and stick your neck out and dare somebody to take a swipe. Trust me, they're waiting. (laughs) They're just waiting for you to become noticeable enough that, uh, aha, we have a target, and then to come after you. I think information like this is most useful because as you develop, as your reach grows, as your influence is magnified and your circle of influence grows and starts to take in more and more people, the depth and the uh, harshness of the criticism that you receive is going to grow accordingly as well. So you need to expect that. And you need to understand it's not a sign that, uh, boy, you must be dead wrong because now people are disagreeing with you or they're saying bad things about you. This is the way it's always been. But if you take James Walpole's advice and understand, you don't have to defend yourself to people who are never going to give you their approval anyway. And rather than sitting there and trying to tell them, well, this is where you're wrong about me, and this is why you should like me, and really I'm a good person. No. Ignore them and act in ways that they can't deny. Sorry, I'm going to sound like an Ammon Bundy fanboy, but this is, this is one of the things that I've admired most about Ammon. His critics are ruthless. I mean, he literally has people wishing for his death on a daily basis. Now, if you haven't been in that situation where people are literally wishing, I just wish that someone would kill him. I just wish the police would just shoot him dead. I wish he would get Lavoy finicumed. He gets that kind of stuff every single day. I don't know how well you would hold up to that, but I know that would, that would take a toll on me. I'm used to people saying unkind things about me. I've, I've not had to weather, you know, people, you know, lusting for my death. But Ammon still conducts himself in an above-board fashion. And the thing that his critics absolutely can't stand, and this is the thing they just can't get over, is no matter how much they throw at him, no matter how um, nasty they are in accusing him, the, the things that they accuse him of, he still continues to, to live his life as a person of faith and a person of action and a person who is willing to stand up for others even when it is extremely unpopular to do so. And, of course, he has skin in the game. It's not like they can say, well, you know, he's all talk and he's never done anything. Oh, man, the guy sat in prison for the better part of two years awaiting trial. Ultimately acquitted in one trial. The case dismissed with prejudice in the next trial. And this is against the full might and power of the federal government. None of us, myself included, expected to see him and his family prevail. But they did. 
and his critics can't deny. That's a guy who has skin in the game. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A couple other articles that I'm going to include in today's show notes. I won't be sharing them in their entirety. Actually, one of them I will, but uh, one in particular that I'd like you to take a look at. I know you heard about the uh, the alleged uh, kidnapping plot against the Michigan, Gov- Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Um, did you notice? I know the press has not uh, played this up too much, but the acquittal of the last three men charged with plotting to kidnap Michigan's governor. Just one more example of the FBI trying to save us from monsters of its own creation. And there's a great report from Deborah, I believe it's pronounced Heine, writing for AmericanGreatness.com, AmGreatness.com. Just a couple quick, uh, quick excerpts from her story. The last three men to stand trial in connection with the FBI-inspired plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer have been found not guilty on all counts. A Michigan jury on Friday acquitted Eric Molitor and twin brothers William Knoll and Michael Knoll after about a, after a day of uh, deliberations following a three-week trial. Molitor broke down in tears after his verdict was read. Molitor and the Knoll brothers had pleaded guilty, not guilty rather, to state charges of providing material support for terrorist acts and illegally possessing firearms. The trio were among 14 men charged in state and federal court over the alleged plot to kidnap the governor at her vacation home in Antrim County in 2020. The hoax involved at least a dozen FBI informants working with FBI handlers and undercover agents out of numerous field offices. That's according to Julie Kelly. She reported that last year. Now, BuzzFeed was the first to report on the FBI's heavy involvement in the plot in July 2021 based on filings by defense attorneys. Reporters Ken Benzinger and Jessica Garrison wrote, Working in secret, the informants did more than just passively observe and report on the actions of the suspects. Instead, they had a hand in nearly every aspect of the alleged plot, starting with its inception. The extent of their involvement raises questions as to whether there would have even been a conspiracy without them. So I'm I'm happy to see this, but I also would argue, you know, this is the reason why... When you hear talk about, well, you know, these January 6th defendants, they deserve to be going to prison for years and years for what they did. It's a show trial. And this was supposed to be a show trial. Fortunately, the jury in Michigan saw through the prosecutorial nonsense. In fact, you have FBI whistleblowers like former FBI agent Kyle Serafin speaking up and saying another FBI case and trapping people into a fake terrorism Results in three acquittals. Anybody think the FBI can be trusted with this power? He says this stuff can't continue in America. In fact, his former uh, FBI agent uh, friend, uh, Steve Friend, also commented uh, on uh, X, formerly Twitter, saying the FBI fednapping is blown up. These guys were vulnerable. The FBI targeted them for entrapment. Thank goodness the jurors saw through this abuse of power. So I guess what I'm asking is, wouldn't that cause you to at least question some of that narrative out there? Of, oh, yeah, they're breaking up plots, and this is why, you know, it's so important we focus on these MAGA Americans who are such a danger to our democracy. It's nonsense. And if you still believe, well, it was really an insurrection at January on January 6th at the Capitol, 
It's stuff like this that makes it uh, much harder to dismiss the possibility. But were the feds involved? Did they have agents provocateur? Did they have informants in there manipulating the crowd? More and more, that's starting to look like the case. Stay frosty, my friend. Stay skeptical. <laughs> don't, don't believe everything that you read. I want to point out next our article of the day. This is a fairly lengthy one, but I want you to get acquainted, first of all, with this article from Gary Gallus. This is on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And I don't know about you, but if you just marvel at how much human progress has occurred within recent memory, I mean within the last couple hundred of years, it's absolutely staggering. And I don't just mean the technological advancements, the industrial revolution and so forth, but I mean the percentage of the world's population that has been lifted out of poverty and, and into a secure lifestyle. Maybe not rolling in the dough, but uh, they don't have to, you know, scratch and scrape just to, to get by. It's remarkable. And if you're not familiar with Henry Grady Weaver's book, The Mainstream, or I'm sorry, The Mainspring of Human Progress, This is something that uh, you really should find the time to read. It's the true story of progress for the human race with acute understanding of the fundamental cause, which is freedom itself. And by the way, Weaver's book actually drew very heavily from Rose Wilder Lane's 1943, The Discovery of Freedom, Man's Struggle Against Authority. This is uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter, Rose Wilder Lane. She's another one of those just undiscovered resources, and what a voice for freedom. Gary Gallas uh, does a remarkable job of talking about this timeless classic, The Mainspring of Human Progress, as well as some of the influences that uh, that prompted Henry Grady Weaver to write it. I'll tell you this, you would uh, would be a very rare person not to, to read this book and come away with a much deeper appreciation of how blessed you are to live in the time that you live and to better understand why freedom is essential for the creation of a better world. Fantastic stuff. And by the way, the the mainspring of human progress, if you're interested, you don't have to run out and buy a copy. You can click the link provided in Gary's article, and it's available for free on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. That's how important this is. Truly remarkable stuff. Again, that's our article of the day. Okay, one last thing, and I just wanted to share this with you because I have expensive hobbies. Now, as far as expensive hobbies go, I'm, I'm into the shooting sports. I'm into reloading. I like that kind of stuff, and yeah, it's, it's expensive. Now, it's not as expensive as other hobbies. I mean, guys who uh, do the, the Jeep safari down in Moab, you know, and are building rock crawlers or guys who are into a motocross or uh, even hunting. You know, this, I mean, there, there are any number of expensive hobbies out there. But uh, we all know people who have, you know, very spendy hobbies. And if the rising cost of everything has kind of left you feeling like, oh, well, I can't do anything fun anymore. It's all too expensive. I'd like you to check out the article that the article I'm including in today's uh, show notes. 20 historical hobbies for $20 or less. This is from Candace McManaman writing for intellectualtakeout.org. And she says, look, new hobbies can seem intimidating and, and uh, worse, expensive. The internet offers complicated lists and costly supplies for even the most basic skills. And we might feel like we can't invest too much into a hobby. I mean, come on, who knows if we'll even be good at it anyway. But she says, in reality, many hobbies, particularly those that rely more on building a skill than on collecting items, start with very few supplies. 
And she gives some examples. So here are 20 historical hobbies that will cost you $20 or less to try out. And she categorizes these loosely by masculine and feminine pursuits according to their historical connotations. So uh, number one, masculine historical hobbies, orienteering. That's navigation using basic analog tools, a map, a compass. This was a skill necessary for any historical traveler. And she links to a good basic kit on Amazon. Number two, fire starting. Starting a fire from scratch has always been an invaluable survival skill. So there's a basic flint kit, or you can go old school with a bow drill fire kit. I like the uh, fire steels, you know, flint and steel. That's kind of become my tradition. I like to, you know, when it's time to start the bonfire at a family get together, I break out the flint and steel and show, look how easy this is. Then there's whittling and wood carving. Some sets offer different types of blades, but a little jackknife is enough to get you started. Anything from sturdy sticks to little blocks of lumber can be used for carving. Not tying. I know the Boy Scouts taught me everything I need to know about this. You should probably take a look at that. A basic kit with cord and clips. Grab an instructional copy. Learn how to tie knots like farmers, sailors, and engineers have tied for centuries. How about harmonica? Yeah, that could be a fun one. Shadow boxing. In ancient Greece, hand-to-hand combat was a necessary part of a young man's education. Pick up some weighted gloves and an instructional book to explore boxing. You don't even need a punching bag. Knife throwing is another one. I know the guys are like, all right. (laughs) Our wives are, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, but yeah, throwing knives and axes if you want to try those. Again, a great warrior skill and a sport. Now, the feminine historical hobbies include things like knitting and crocheting, bread baking. Oh, is there anything better than fresh baked bread, indoor gardening, a penny whistle. Okay, that's one I wouldn't have thought about, (laughs) but you can learn how to make one. Braiding, flower pressing, dancing, and then some historical hobbies for both genders, and these include hiking or walking, reading, music. Interesting. You might not have a guitar or a piano, but you can master music theory. How about learning another language? How about first aid? There's one that could actually come in handy. Letter writing. You want to really get fancy? Get yourself a wax sealing kit, you know, for the envelope. Chess. Build your brain power while you're doing it. The point is, you have all these resources at your fingertips when it comes to learning new hobbies. And if you find someone who already does the hobby and is willing to teach you, well, then you've got a mentor. Beekeeping. Yeah. Maybe that's one. Okay, that one might cost you more than 20 bucks, but... This is just the tip of the iceberg. Basically, the world of historical hobbies has endless opportunities to offer you once you start exploring. And most of these actually can be useful skills in some way, shape, or form. So it might be worth considering. This is The Brian Hyde Show.